0: You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am.
1: Hello and welcome again to another episode of The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins. As always, I'm your host. And this week we're talking more on the tax side. It is November now. How quickly did that happen? We've passed the 31st of October, obviously and we're now at a point where if you need to lodge your tax, it has to be through a tax agent. Very important to have our tax expert in, it's Carlo Bordi. Carlo, thanks for coming in and chatting about general tax time property-flavored information, really. Let's yeah. have a chat. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me in. What are the number one questions you get from your clients when it comes to their property investments and how it affects them at tax time?
2: Well, just to start off with, you mentioned the date October. What happens there is that most individuals have to lodge their tax returns if they're self-lodging by the 31st of October. As tax agents, most tax agents have got privilege at a, at a discounted time to, to lodge the returns, uh, and that can vary from being December, March. Uh, most of them are up as late as 15th of May, and sometimes even as late as the, the 5th of uh, June or the following year. So if we're talking about the 2019 tax return, you know, you may not have to lodge it in until the 15th of May um, 2020. It's a bit of time to have your money sitting in your offset account, right? If you're self-employed or, or, or you owe money to the tax department, a good strategy which I always tell my clients is, look, come in early, let's do all the calculations, and we don't have to lodge it. If you owe tax, you've got a lot of money in tax, and you haven't got the dollars, well, Let's lodge it on your last lodgement date. Use our extended periods, which gives you the ability to find those dollars and/or to uh, keep it invested and a little bit of interest at one point one percent. Better in your pocket than the ATOs, right? Well, ultimately, certainly. And if it's just a one-off scenario, there's no real repercussions on that. There's nothing wrong with lodging on the fifteenth of May every year, is there? There isn't. No. But what happens is, if a person is self-employed and their wages or their sorry, their income from their business fluctuates, the commissioner sort of gets you by these quarterly instalments. So these quarterly instalments can get rather hefty. So if you leave it too late, the uh, the instalment, they catch you at the end. Uh, instead of spreading over four equal periods, if you owe them a lot of tax, that can hit you for like a double tax. Yep. And what I mean by that is, normally, let's make up an example. If you owe the commissioner, say $10,000 in tax, and if you lodge your tax return in August, they'll say to you, right, uh, give us the 10,000 plus now you're on an instalment basis and every quarter we'd like from you $2,500. So you pay them every quarter 2500 so when you lodge your next tax return if you owe them another 10 grand you've already done it by four instalments you paid up already you yep. paid up if you lodge your tax term by the 15th of May and you pay them the 10 grand, well, then they haven't got those four quarters to ask for the 2,500. And they then turn around and say, right, for the June quarter, which is June payable by the 28th of July, you owe us another 10 grand.
1: For the year that you can't For the end. year
2: because you hadn't paid on the instalment in the year. So like I said, if it's a one-off scenario, not a problem, if it's on an ongoing basis, well, then you've got to be careful of that cash flow problem.
1: Makes sense. Okay, hit me with those questions. I
2: suppose the biggest misconception is a lot of people are under under the belief that if they've got a, an investment property and if they simply sell their own house and then move into their investment property, which was obviously once a rental property, or it could have been a holiday home, if they move into that property and they simply live in it for a year or two, then it's tax free. And unfortunately that misconception is, is grossly incorrect. Uh, in most instances, if a property being an investment property is first rental and then becomes your residential, basically the commissioner use a pro rata calculation and to put that in English, if you if you rented a property for five years and then you live in it for another five years, well, basically half the time it's been a, a rental property. So whatever the difference is when you bought it for, what you sold it for, so whatever your gain is, half of that's going to be discounted. But then again, because you lived in it for more than 12 months, you get another further 50% discount on that. So ultimately, you're paying tax on a quarter.
1: What about a situation where you've moved in for a year? A lot of people talk to me about the six-year rule. You moved in for a year, and then you've got six years. Have you heard of that one?
2: you possibly relating to, to uh, an exempt legislation. And what the commissioner there, he basically brought in some legislation about grey nomads. And he's saying that if you have got a residential property, and that's the only property that you own, and you don't then acquire another property which you deem to be your residential property. So in other words, you jump in your car and your caravan, you're going around Australia for the next two years, and you want to rent your house out to someone. That then entitles you to do so. And if you then come back and reside in that house within six years, there is no capital gains implications. You can actually come back, live in it for 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 a period of time, and then go for another trek, and the six-year clock starts again. So there's more than one. What if I buy a house, live in it for a year, rent it out for another
1: five, and then sell it?
2: Different legislation applies to uh, to that. Basically, if you have your own property and then you change it to being an investment property, so a rental property or a holiday home, and you acquire another property then the commissioner says um, you need to determine from a licensed valuer what the market value of that property is once the property becomes available for rent. So that gives you a new benchmark. So to put some figures to that, if you buy a house for $500,000 and two years later it's worth 550 and then you rent it out for seven years and you sell it for 600,000 with no other adjustments which uh, for this example, the 50 grand would be your capital gain Uh, you've had it for more than 12 months, you get a 50% discount, so you pay tax on that difference. Yeah, So it is is still taxable.
1: We've had some changes over the last couple of years, haven't we, when it comes to things like travel for property expenses. The ATO has pulled back on that.
2: The ATO virtually deemed that for the average Joe Blow and mum and dad, if you've got a rental property and you have to travel for that property for whatever reason, whether it be, I've had a tenant demolish my house completely to I wanna just check if it looks okay, none of that travel now deductible unless you are in the business of renting property, which most people are not under the definition. Yeah,
1: so I remember my old man had a property in Queensland. He used to be able to go to Queensland, do what he would do, check out the property, probably have a couple of days uh, R&R as well, and that would be, Expensable, right?
2: To a degree. What the Commissioner virtually says is, what's the primary purpose of your travel? And if a person was to demonstrate that, um, look, I'm leaving Perth, for example, I'm going to Eastern States, I'm leaving Perth on uh, on Friday, I've got a meeting with my agent on the Saturday, and uh, the only flight I can get back is uh, Sunday night or Monday morning, so you're virtually staying three days away, well, that's quite acceptable. Alternatively, if you're going there and you're staying like two weeks away, well, then the Commissioner... Has different criteria, and it won't all be deductible.
1: Regardless, this has all been stripped back,
2: hasn't it? It has all been cut back, so it's, it's it's a mute point now. You can go do whatever you want and travel as much as you want, and just know that none of us deductible. Of it's coming back. None of it's <laughs> deductible. Yeah.
1: Okay, what is deductible though? Give us some um, more examples of things that might be deductible that don't relate specifically to repairing the property. Commissioner
2: virtually allows you most things. I suppose the biggest def- definition that has to be considered is the difference between capital. An expense, and that's where a lot of people get caught out. So down, people are under the impression that if, if I change um, a flick mix in my kitchen, it's deductible because hey, the flick mix broke. I'm changing it. Well, maintenance. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not actually a flick mixer is, is subject to two and a half percent prime cost depreciation, so it means that you've got to claim it over forty years. Um, yeah, <laughs> my, I know. My fifty-dollar <laughs> flick mixer
1: over forty years.
2: And, and look, my, let's be realistic. A flick mixer will probably cost you between fifty dollars and, and one hundred fifty bucks for a cheap one from Bunnings, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with those. And then maybe to install it's going to cost you another hundred bucks, so it's two hundred and fifty dollars. Now, under normal legislation, if you have a capital cost and it's $300 or less, and you're the only owner of that building or that property, it's an outright deduction because there's a $300 limit. But when it attaches to the house like a flick mix like uh, kitchen cabinets air conditioner they're a bit different uh, because air conditioner could be split systems which on a different definition while they could be inbuilt and and there's three different depreciation rates apply to that so it's not that straightforward unfortunately paint on the wall well paint on the wall again under most scenarios paint on the wall is deductible but not always uh, for example, if you buy a house and you buy it at a good price and you go in there and you clean the carpets and you, you, you give it all a, a lick, and, lick and promise with some paint, well, the commissioner says all that money you've spent, even if you're just carpet, doing the carpets, is all capital because you're actually making it better than when you bought it. And it's not because the tenant has made it worse. It's because you're simply improving it. So none of it's deductible at that point in time. Mm. General maintenance, which would be deemed as general maintenance on initial purchase, is not deductible. Gardener. No. That's a real sore point. Like um, when you build a house, most people, um, even though they're small boxes, will normally put some plants in, you put some lawn in, you put some, some shrubs, etc. None of those costs are actually deductible, depreciable. But when that plant dies and you replace the plant, well, then you can claim the deduction on that replacement plant. It's one of those sunk costs on a house. And I can see you laughing there. Yeah, you know? I was
1: just thinking, how, how do you know what plant you're going to get and what does it cost and what's it worth? Is the ATO coming around with the green thumb? I don't know.
2: And I suppose what this highlights is the fact that the ATO doesn't make it simple for the taxpayer. It doesn't make it Zipro as tax agents. I mean, the legislation on this is sometimes you just shake your head and think, who thought of this? But uh, unfortunately, we've got to use what we've got.
1: Carlo, you were telling me off air, one of the most fortunate people are the ones that die.
2: Some new legislation came into play where if you do actually have a property, and before I said to you, if you rent a house out and then you subsequently um, sell it or live in it for a while and then sell it, there's going to be a capital gains implication based on a pro rata calculation. But with this new legislation, if you, if you deem it to be your residential property, so in other words, you're renting it, you then move into it, and you live in it for a number of years, and then you and your lovely wife uh, ends up being your last house that you ever own because you pass away, well, then there's some legislation now that exempts that property from being subject to, uh, to tax.
1: What about if I'm an old fella <laughs> and I've lived in my house for 40 years, the kids have said to me, look, Dad, it's time to head to a home and then I rent that out for the next 10 years, and then I pass away.
2: If it's below the six-year period, because uh, when you go to a home, most of the times you don't acquire a, a property, you're simply either paying a deposit for staying somewhere, so you you're not actually acquiring it. So if you don't acquire a property, that six-year legislation of exemptions applies. Now, if you happen to be in a home for 10 years, well, then there's a pro rata. You know, it's the first six years as a percentage over 10 is exempt. So yeah, okay. so that's what hap- would happen there. What normally does happen, though, is in most instances, when a person has a deceased estate and they acquire their parents' home, which has always been their home and and, and has never been a rental property, and let's keep it simple here, you've got a two-year period to sell that property. Now, when you're selling property under normal scenarios and it's not an enterprise, so you're selling an old rental property or you're selling a a deceased estate, normally the date when applies to... um, often acceptance to often acceptance. So when you sell a property, if you acquire it, uh, your often acceptance date deems deemed your sale date. In relation to a deceased estate, the legislation is different. It's basically from when you settle. And that's the only time when it hires when it settles. Yeah, yeah and, and some people get caught out there. Now, you've got a two-year period to do that. And look, if you can show a scenario where you know probate's been delayed or there's been some other issues, the commissioner will grant additional time for that exemption to apply. Um, Otherwise the property is subject to capital gains.
1: Oh, we've spoken about capital gains before and I I think we've only scratched the surface in that space. But uh, you're right, it is another thing that affects you at tax time. When you're selling property at some point in that tax year it's gonna hit your tax return. And
2: look, the best thing is, everyone doesn't know everything, so just speak to a specialist on this, and even if it means a quick phone call, most people won't charge for a quick phone call, just bounce it off them, and then obviously if you need more an intent to interview, well then you you follow through on it. But uh, look, knowledge is power, so to talk to people is the most important thing. Well I think planning for it, especially when you're doing developments, even as simple
1: as if you're looking to sell, planning to sell across different tax years, that can help drastically with the marginal tax rate, for example, in reducing the tax you pay on your profits?
2: Most definitely. And a lot of people, what they're doing is they, they do understand that basic concept. But where they get caught out is this, this often acceptance state. So, I mean, I've got people saying, look, I'm retiring next year being in in, uh, in July. I'm no longer going to be working. I've got no income. I've just sold my rental property and it settles in August. And uh, I'm going to pay minimal tax because I've, I've got no other income. But if their offer and acceptance date is dated uh, before the 30th of uh, June of that same year, it's the date of the offer and acceptance that deems your sale date and you get caught out. Do you have any clients where
1: you are tax planning the divestment of their portfolio over a number of years?
2: With my clients, it's a matter of just informing them As soon as a client understands that basic concept of often acceptance, it normally does stick because it's an easy one to remember. Um, So any property or any client that has property, the conversation normally stems around make sure you've got a depreciation schedule for your property, make sure if you sell your property, well then um, it's often acceptance date and just some key issues like that. Okay,
1: so uh, really there are other factors in life that will determine when someone sells and at what point you look to rent them out, sell them, hold them. Well, in
2: relation to property, I mean, we've got a very stagnant market at this stage. So so you would love to have a crystal ball and see that property prices are going to increase. But ultimately, when people come to me, and, and this has been happening uh, regularly now, they want to sell their properties and or they're not sure if they want to sell their properties. So ultimately, you've got to look at what your out-of-pocket costs are at this point in time and whether you think that by holding the property for another two, three, five, ten years, you're going to recoup that out-of-pocket. If ultimately there's no chance of doing that, well then the inevitable is just sell it now. incur your loss and move forward. Aren't there
1: Uh, situations where people just can't afford to sell? The tax they'd have to pay, for
2: example, they wouldn't even have the cash flow for it. Well, in most instances, if, if you make a profit, normally the cash flow does exist. However, there's some nasty ones out there. And what I mean by that is, I've had a couple of scenarios where people have bought a property for, um, let's say, $400,000 10 years ago. And they turn around and they sell it for 390. So when they come to the office, they say to me, oh no, I've lost money on this property. But when we do the calculations, they've actually made a profit. And that's a sting in the tail. And the reason why that applies is that when you buy a property with the current legislations we've got, you're entitled to claim depreciation and uh, special building write-off. And those are virtually uh, uh, notional figures. which decrease. Yeah, they decrease the value of the property. Now, if we use a very easy easy example, if you're claiming $5,000 every year as a depreciation and special building write-off entitlement, and you've had it for 10 years... Your property's now gone down by fifty thousand dollars. You made a profit. So you've actually sold it for three ninety well, you bought it for four hundred, take off the fifty you've been claiming along the way, it's now worth three fifty. You sold it for three you've you're right, you've made a profit. And you've got to pay tax on that profit. And if you borrow the full amount, you're gonna have shortfall on your loan as well. Yeah. And speaking of loans, the other thing which is causing an issue is these changes in legislation whereby a lot of the banks are virtually requiring people to now have their loans on a principal and interest instead of interest-only scenario. And that cash flow has been very detrimental. I mean, I had a client recently come in. He's got three properties, and it's virtually going to require him to come up with an additional $75,000 per annum to meet that, that cash principal. flow. Yeah, yeah. So his only option has been to, um, sell? to sell too, yeah. Yeah. That's nuts. And that's the consequence of of what we're dealing with in this market right now. Well,
1: especially in Western Australia, when you hit these interest-only cliffs, it adds another impetus, another need for people to sell. Uh, It keeps that balance of people who are selling needing the transaction more than the people who are buying. keeps that price down.
2: Yeah, look, to me, it's a negative spiral, most definitely. If too many houses on the market, then people are going to be picky and choosy and they're going to get a really good price.
1: Bonus question. A lot of people that come to me, you just picked it up for me then on the principal and interest. A lot of people say, oh, it needs to be interest only because then it can be tax deductible. It's a fallacy there, isn't it? If it's principal and interest or interest only, you can still claim the interest. You just have to work out what that is.
2: Yeah, only the interest payment on a loan is deductible, a principal repayment isn't, but obviously over a period of time, you want a property that when you retire has no loan, so it's a bit of a catch-22, you sort of have to dwindle that loan down. And look, the beauty of the interest only is normally we say to people, look, do it for the first five years, hopefully interest rates remain stable, and rental returns will increase, and that extra cash flow will enable you to make your principal repayments. Unfortunately, the market we're in, it's had its had both gone the other way. Interest has gone down, but rent returns have gone down even more.
1: Hopefully, in the next few years, as people were saying, interest rates will stay low and rents are starting to tick up. Maybe we'll start to get that balance
2: again. Look, one hopes so, but unfortunately, the reality of it is with cash flow, if a person doesn't have that extra cash flow today, then they're suffering today, and it's hard for them to find that.
1: Carlo, another great chat on tax time. My biggest message to everyone out there would be, Anyone out there with property, stop wasting your time trying to do it yourself. Get yourself a tax agent. They obviously cost you a 1000 bucks a year, something like that, depending on your level of of involvement. But they will save you that much more and that many more headaches in the years to come if the uh, HO ever comes and, and knocks on your shoulder. Carlo, thank you very much for coming in. Appreciate
2: it. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Ciao. Today, we're talking about Carlisle with our Suburb Spotlight. We have one person to talk to who's been around for a while. It's a family name. It's Matthew Jones from Century 21. Matt, thanks for coming
0: in. Thanks for having me, Trent.
1: Tell me about Carlisle. It's a family suburb, isn't it? There's a lot of density. It's been around for a very long time. It's had a name change, apparently. I didn't even know this.
0: That's right. Yeah. So it's actually a very diverse suburb, but the origins go back to around 1829. Uh, so basically, there wasn't a lot that happened between you know 1829 up to up to the late
1: 1800s. But we, just talking farmers, right? It'd be farmland at that. Yeah,
0: point. pretty much. There was a few changes, like land ownership changes and things like that, but no actual real development. The greater area of Vic Park basically started to rapidly get moving in the late 1890s. That was mainly centered around what was known as Albany Road at the time. It's now um, Albany Highway. So, yeah, there was a lot of, I guess, rapid growth in that time. And, and basically, a spin off of that was a uh, land development, a residential land development uh, called a State. That's right, called Bickford, the Bickford development. So Carlisle, for all intents and purposes,
1: back in the day was known as Bickford. I don't understand what's wrong with Bickford. <laughs> Why isn't it Bickford today? What happened? I don't
0: know. It's pretty wild times back in the early 1900s. It's no, better yeah. than Car- it's no worse than Carlisle. <laughs> true, true. So basically what happened is the ratepayers in uh, 1919 all got together and they decided to change the uh, the name of the, the train station that was there at the time, which was called Victoria Park East. And they changed that to, to be the Carlisle train station. And at the same time, they changed the subway suburb name to Carlisle and um, it is what it is today. There must be a Mr. Carlisle
1: who Surely, somewhere in the back from there. the British uh, Isles back in the day, I'm sure. Definitely. Sir Carlisle, That's it. tip a hat to you, my friend. <laughs> hey, tell us a bit more about Carlisle. Tell us about uh, what's been going on the more contemporary years.
0: Carlisle is a very diverse suburb, so it has undergone a lot of change, I guess, and a lot of development over the years. It, it Big re- blocks. It, Originally? Yeah. Originally started off with uh, yeah, quarter acre blocks, a lot of fibro homes on there, some brick of course, but basically yeah, there's been a lot of development probably in the last, you know, twenty to thirty years, I guess, in the suburb and a lot of those triplex, you know, quarter acre blocks, triplex development. So there's now three on the block. So all of Carlisle's R thirty zoning. Yeah, you know, with that zoning, yeah, there's been three villas put on a block, etc, But but it One is quite
1: OG triplex suburbs i think
0: absolutely yeah yeah and it is you know with the proximity to the city and you know a lot of those triplex sites are really good like that 20 meter frontage and 50 deep it just sort of lends itself really well it to. works yeah absolutely so one villa at the front and then two at the back do you think yeah. we have too many of them too many triplex sites in the area uh it's a good question i suppose like probably there there is a lot of of those type of products in the area, but but when the market's moving along, and, and particularly um, you know back in the boom times and things like that, when there's a lot of population in in um, in the area, I think that places like Carlo do really really well because so close to the airport, so close to the city, that low maintenance lifestyle appeal, appeals to a lot of people. So you know, as an investment per, uh, perspective, you know, having tenants and that sort of thing in there, you know, it's really good. It serves its purpose, is what you're
1: saying. Absolutely. I would have thought, though, we're probably at a contemporary point in time in Carlisle now where we could have a bit more variation. It seems like the zoning has lended itself to two types of properties, old properties that haven't been developed or triplexes. Surely, with how close Carlisle is to the city, we could see a bit more investment in just some nice big family homes starting to pick up the value there, but also some more townhouses and maybe some apartments. Yeah, that's a fair call. I think to a certain extent, I mean,
0: there's a product in Carlisle that I think is a you know, we'll see a lot of development in the years ahead, and that's the um, the duplex pair that's on a on a triplex site. So a lot of those are um, uh, duplex pair with the shared shared roofline. They'll be you know two two by one properties. The horrors. Yes, with uh, the horrors. Yeah, so they'll have the the twenty five meter frontage and sort of thirty five or thirty seven deep. So with that twenty five meter frontage, I think a lot of those you know have the potential to just be split down the middle and mm. give that 12 and a half meter frontage either side. It'll create a good product, and a lot of them are sort of not far away from the Archer Street strip so I think that there is a thirst to be honest from the market for for more sort of family homes in the area
1: brings safety brings community
0: yeah that's right but there are certain pockets of color that do have like Solar Way, has a lot of sort of family family sort of homes and things like that so segue
1: into what you just uh, referenced there
0: yes correct yeah so (laughs) you know what I'm talking about right? I do yeah yeah probably little known fact uh, for people outside of color a lot of the street names are named after space and astrology themes and things like that so Street, Mars Street, Jupiter satellite, uh, asteroid, Apollo star—you know—so it's it's quite a unique uh, thing and very sort of um.
1: It's the it's the first estate. I mean, you see them around town. You know, see through City of Dunlop, City of Swan—they've all got themes, right? Whether it's native bushes or ocean themes whatever it was sea you know sea animals all those sort of things that's right yeah surely again this is the og estate (laughs) where they've got a theme
0: absolutely yeah so there's no real strong data on it but we think that you know perhaps in the 60s that space age time and things going on there that um you know maybe they've it was sort of relevant at the time so but yeah some of the names are um yeah, pretty distinct
1: to the area. Maybe Carlisle was the hip place in town in the 60s. We're going to have to ask some older people than us about that, I think. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. 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 Oh, think would be interesting. So, where are you seeing the future of Carlisle? Is it a lot of this bringing it up into a more valuable suburb?
0: The future is bright. I mean, if you look at Carlisle as a suburb, I mean, there's so much going on around it that uh, so much infrastructure already there in place. So, you've awesome got... Awesome locations. Yeah. I mean, you've got the Vic Park Cafe Strip literally minutes away and we have two train stations, so Oates Street and, and Carlisle train stations. So they, you know, straight into the city there, even the, um, yeah, with New Optus Stadium It's only a couple of uh, stops away you know, Crown Casino's around And as I mentioned Just the stadium just then But I, I think the big thing That's happened in the last few years Is definitely The Lath Lane Oval redevelopment The Lath Lane Precinct. Precinct so
1: Has it done anything yet?
0: I think it's created hype Like a few years ago I probably noticed it even more than I do now So basically Our, our agency's on, on Archer Street Which is like the main drag In the area And we had a lot of Commercial interest A few years back So people literally Walking into the office This is not long after It had been announced That the We're going to be coming to town, so to speak. And basically, a lot of people coming in, you know, is there any commercial opportunities on Archer Street, things like that. So that's when I sort of noticed that, oh, there's there's a bit of hype here. And there's also quite a few sellers that I've done appraisals for over the last couple of years that are thinking of selling, but they just want to hold off till everything's um, up and running and done. There's also... You know, Obviously the Lathlane Oval itself has, has had a revamp and another oval's added and across from that it's work that's still undergoing right now is where the old Carlisle Vic Park uh, Bowls Club was and that's hoping to be completed at the end of December this year. Parkland and um, they're putting an orchard in there for wildlife, tennis courts, basketball courts. It's just a, a real facelift of that area in general so... In answer to your question, in regards to you know what will it bring in terms of price, it's difficult to just sort of pin it, pinpoint it down to an actual price thing. Other than the area itself is getting a lot more profile, and I think that when when the market generally across the state picks up, I would have thought Carlisle would be
1: you know pretty forefront. good value. Do you think that there's a missed opportunity there in not pulling a Claremont Oval in terms of a couple of apartment buildings, you know, with some views of training? Surely, there's a cohort of people that would have bought there up is pre-sale with those sort of.
0: I don't know if they've missed the boat, to be honest, with having it at you know high-rise apartments there or anything like that. I, I think the area's got a good feel as it is right now, and there's a few apartments that overlook um, overlook the oval, and um, yeah, I, I think I think overall there's a bit of buzz there. No one really knows what what impact it's going to fully have when it's finished, but I do feel as though when the market picks up, it's
1: it's um, there's a lot of profile there. All right, let's move into price points. Sure. I want to know what it's going to cost me to get into Carlisle at the very cheapest. So I'm guessing one of those dumpy old duplex halves (laughs) would be your, your first call. Yep, and then I want to know what it's going to cost me to go up that scale.
0: Sure. So one of the uh, most appealing things about Carlisle, certainly what probably excites me as an agent, is the diversity. So we're talking probably anywhere from mid threes really up to even mid eights. There was a recent sale, so that's a massive scope for, for demographic. A, yeah, absolutely, and, and we do see across of, of a lot of different people. So I guess to enter the market in Carlisle, yeah, a two bedroom or three bedroom duplex half, they can be sort of mid threes up to up to high threes. There are some areas. Uh, Some streets in the suburb Like Poultridge Avenue So they have some more Sort of established Duplex halves That are more really They are houses per se They've just got a shared garage For example With the next door neighbour Those blocks are You know Reasonable size Sort of 400 Which is reasonable for the area And um, you know They can be sort of Pushing up to the mid fours A little bit yeah These
1: triplexes They've been dumped Haven't they
0: They have They have come down Um, Look Carlisle Once again It's not a huge suburb There's about Approximately 3,100 dwellings And about it you know 6700 residents give or take although it's not a huge suburb per se like the the price swings in the area can be quite dramatic so some of those triplex sites right up what we call the top end near the Roberts Road Lathlane border um, the potential for them to still push up into the high sevens is there. There's probably some recent sales evidence suggesting that mid sevens is more where it's at at the moment. Um, and you well, know, it all comes down
1: to what the units are selling for. Correct, and yeah. And what I was referencing is how much they've been dumped. To a certain extent, you because know, the every, last three... Every time a unit goes down, yep. the price of the development site goes down times three.
0: There is, I, I, I totally acknowledge that, you know, the resale value is where it's at for what the triplex, what they actually sell for, these quarter acre blocks. In the last three years, it's been interesting to watch. So 2017-18, there was not a lot of new development carried out. So those triplex sites being bowled over and three new ones being built on, there wasn't a lot of that taking place in 2017-18. So I think that um, because of that, the, the lack of sales evidence in the previous two years probably made a lot of you know developers and
1: investors almost a little bit nervous about how the resales would be. Well, they, it wasn't stacking up. Correct. If it's not going to stack up, they're not going to build them.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think that in 2019, there's been quite a bit of development go on compared to the last two years. So all of a sudden, there's an influx of sales evidence again.
1: And I think people can just move forward with a little bit more confidence. Is that because they're buying the project site? Cheaper, or because they've just got hope for the future.
0: I think there was also a shortage of blocks that came on the market as well. There was almost like it just came to a bit of a halt where people just didn't, you know, probably not selling, um, you know, quarter acre sites, not developing, and it was just a bit of a halt. Whereas, you know, sales in in the bigger blocks did come back a little bit, and then um, I guess. You know, people just started developing more in 2019. Yeah, so there probably was a little bit of, you know, people were picking it up for what they they thought was reasonable, and then and then developing from there. Once again, there's a lot of variances in that too. I mean, I've just sold a recent, probably what I call a pretty high end project. So that was on um, Planet Street, just a few doors up from Bella Rosa Cafe there. So which would probably be you know absolute prime Carlo location. Those ones there are a little bit more high end, and and uh, we had one three by two at the front went for six forty five. The other one in the middle went for six fifty three, which is a really good price for a middle villa in the area. And then they did a three by three at the back, which is really unique for Carlisle. And that went for seven twenty two. So and that was they had a pretty high spec. Now, if the product is good and the location's good in Carlisle, the money's still there. It's just that you've got to be careful where you buy and what spec you apply to it, because you're at risk of
1: overcapitalizing. Of the family homes that we've got in Carlisle. You said the eight hundreds is the peak at the moment.
0: Yeah, well, I sold one a little bit over twelve months ago. Now it was a brand new four by two that went for eight twenty, which was a you know pretty high for the area. There's also been a couple of two story homes recently sold. One was four by three, which went for seven sixty, and another one uh, went for eight fifty, and they were like pretty pretty big internally, you know, um, over three hundred square meters, things
1: like that. For the eight fifty. All right, we've been talking about subdivision, I guess, development for this whole segment, really, haven't we? Yep. We're going to get a bit deeper now. Sure. Tell us where that zoning of R30 is. Is it everywhere? Is it a portion? Where does it cut off? Yeah, sure. So R30 is throughout all of Carlisle. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. You've got that. And that represents obviously the old school way of rezoning suburbs where it's just a blanket rezoning and everything's available. That's right, yep. Very homogenous sites. So what you have really is as a council is that risk. That you just make it a denser version of what it was before. Good thing about Carlisle is there are fundamental reasons why a lot of people would want to continue living there, and Definitely. it seems to have actually worked or out worked out alright. Yep. Do you see any rezoning? Opportunities changing in the future, or do you think that the council is still pretty happy with how that density sits in that suburb?
0: I i think it's pretty pretty right to be honest at the moment. Yeah, there's no word of any sort of higher density. Perhaps if there was, it may be along the rail lines or main roads or something like that, along Rutland Avenue or Roberts. But at this point, at, I mean R30. It's it's pretty, you know, it's got the potential to have very high density, you know, if it, if it goes there. And um, I think. The other end of the suburb, towards um, more towards Oats Street and down that end, there's a lot of big duplex blocks there, and they're, they're sort of at eight forty square meters, so they're not quite ready. They're not. They're missing out just a little bit on um, on the triplex uh, ability. But I think it's down there that, you know, that's where the family homes could probably kick in a little bit because they're going to have perhaps, you know, 400 square meter lots, which might not sound like big to more suburban areas oh, a little bit further out. Maybe watts. Yeah, but in Carlisle it is. So yeah. where is that cut off? They filter through in different streets and that, but predominantly they're probably down from maybe Mercury Street down a lot of the time. I mean, it's sort of Bishop's Gate, Mars, even between uh, Oates Street and Conn Street down there, which is closer to the industrial. But end, but there, there is a lot of still residential homes there and probably a lot of opportunity there. I think that I've sold one down there recently, um, which was a, a brick and tile home to a young couple and they, they, they were able to get it for 540 and they're going to live in the home and do it up and it's on an 842 square metre block. So I think that's good value. All right, let's get into the median house price question. Sure. Hit us with it. <laughs> it's coming at 505000 which is a, it's a good fight back for the median price of where it has been in Carlisle a little bit in recent times.
1: What are we doing with five hundred? $1000 Matthew
0: Sure um I would be getting if possible a street front villa um for resale purposes street front generally speaking so
1: second hand obviously
0: Yeah 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 and then um if you can get two living areas is the key thing for resale as well so street front villa with two living areas a three by two um and then obviously you know that middle to
1: top end of Carlisle, if it's possible yeah is that possible for those prices if these things are selling new in the high 600s how are they getting down to the low yeah
0: it's very there's a lot of variance in in them and um the top end of Carlisle will be very difficult to get it but that sort of possibly around the middle section you may be able to. And it really comes down to the age of them. Like some of those villas are, you know, we're talking... No development's taking place in the late 90s all the way up to 2019. So it's like- to fully depreciate it. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of, that could be ex-rental stock and just looking a bit tired, yeah. So possibly new, up for a reno. Some updates, yeah, yeah. If I did have, I mean, the median's at 505, but, you know, some of those bigger duplex blocks, I mean, some of them have sold for 520. So if if I was trying to, if I had a little bit more, you know, scratch up another 15, uh, I'd be looking at, at a duplex block, yeah.
1: Okay, interesting. Yep. Matthew Jones- Thank you very much. This has to be one of the more entertaining episodes I think we've had. You're a great orator, and I uh, look forward to being able to talk to you both about Carlisle, Bigford, uh, in the future <laughs> again, but also uh, go and grab a couple more. All right, appreciate that. Good Thanks, on mate. you. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook
1: page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!